morning. So I don't know if you know it or not, but this week was um, the Feast of Pentecost on the Jewish calendar. So there's seven feasts in Israel that is celebrated every year, and they go through a ritual, a ceremony, each celebrating each one. And you might think, um, how could, you know, in our computer age and stuff, you have a computer that's 10 years old that you used to throw it away, right? It's outdated, just 10 years old. So how could something that an 80 to 120-year-old man wrote 3,500 years ago be relevant to our times that we live in? How could they be important? And then God goes and hides. There's only one place in the Bible you can find all seven in sequence, and that's in the book of Leviticus. Uh, I don't know about just be honest with you. The first time I read Leviticus, it was pretty hard chew. You know, and I think a lot of people that say, I'm going to read the whole Bible. They probably read Genesis and go, that was cool. Exodus, miracles, exciting. They get to Leviticus and they go, I think I'm going to read the Psalms next. <laughs> so you have to make it to chapter 23 to get to the feast, right? And in this is hidden one of the most incredible things in the Bible. You say, how could it be important? Well, I'll let you decide if it's important. Is the first and second coming of Christ important? I would say yes. Can anybody think of something that would top those two? No. The first four feasts in the spring are a foreshadowing of what Christ would accomplish during his first coming. He accomplished them all. He accomplished them all exactly at the timing of the feast. The actual word for feast is moed, set time appointment. He, he fulfilled it exactly at the right time. The, the fall feasts, there's three of them, they are a representative of what Christ will accomplish in the second coming. So if you don't know the feast, you really don't have the, the overview of what God's going to do. What's God up to? But if you know the feast, you'll see the foreshadowing. Sometimes it's, it's really clear. Passover, the foreshadowing. There's going to be a lamb of God. It has to be a male. It has to be without sin. It has to be blemish-free. It has to be picked on the 10th of Nisan, then examined for four days. And if it's without blemish, then it can be sacrificed. 14th of Nisan, 3 o'clock. Jesus came in the year that he died on the 10th of Nisan. We call it Palm Sunday. He entered Jerusalem. The people are thinking the king's coming. But he's riding a donkey, so it's kind of a hint. Yeah, he's a king, but not this time. So what's God really saying? He's saying, behold my lamb. And he's saying, go ahead, examine him. You won't find a fault with him. If you read through the Gospels, I counted eight or ten times that Jesus is examined. How many times did Pilate go out to the crowd? I find no fault in him. He'd go back because they, they demanded his death. He'd come out and said, okay, I'll scourge him and let him go. But I don't find any fault in him. Finally, he sends him to Herod. Comes back, goes out a third time, says, I didn't find a fault in him, neither did Herod. Pilate's wife comes and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. So what's going on? They're examining the lamb. And the lamb has to be without blemish. So then on the the 14th of Nisan at 3 o'clock, the Bible says that at 9 in the morning, Jesus was nailed to the cross. At noon, it became dark. At 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lama, Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? 
And then he takes a sip of wine and vinegar and cries out, it's finished. Three o'clock, exactly when the Passover lamb had to be killed. In the first Passover, they killed the Passover lamb, applied the blood, then they had to stay inside and they ate unleavened bread because they were going to leave in such a hurry they couldn't even um, have it leavened. And the Bible says before Jesus suffered, he had Passover with the disciples and he said, take this is my body. He took the unleavened bread that had been celebrated for 1,500 years and says, no, this is me. They must have been shocked. And the unleavened bread, unleavened is symbol of sinless. It was striped like Jesus' back. It was pierced like Jesus' side. It was wrapped in linen and hidden away like Jesus' body. When did he do that? Feast of unleavened bread, 15th of Nisan. Exactly on the feast. Three days later is the feast of first fruits. The Jews are bringing the barley harvest. They would go out to their field, they'd find the, the first portion that was mature, and they'd bring it and dedicate it to God, offering to God the first fruits, which means now God would bless the entire harvest. This is the morning Jesus is raised from the dead. And Paul said that foreshadowing was Christ is the first fruits from the dead, the first person to be resurrected. Technically speaking, the resurrections in the Bible are actually resuscitations, which means they were dead for sure, they were raised alive, but then what? They died again, right? Like Lazarus. He eventually died again. But Jesus is resurrected into a glorified state, never to die again. And when would it happen? On the Feast of first fruits. So he's fulfilled the first three, not only... Um, perfectly, but on the very day and the very hour sometimes that it was prophesied that it would happen. So you have to pay attention. So of the seven feasts, they're all defined by a, day, a, a month and a date, month and a date, except for Pentecost, the one we're going to talk about today. It was defined by, you. Moses said, I guess, is that the only slide we have? Okay, I'm going to have to, to read all this. So Moses said in Leviticus 23, You shall count for yourself from the day after the Sabbath, from the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, uh, seven Sabbaths shall be counted. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall have a new grain offering. So the barley harvest was on the 17th of Nisan, and Moses says count 50 days. And how do you do that? You count seven sevens. Seven Sabbaths, 49. And then he said on the, on the morrow, 50. Then you have the wheat harvest. And this is Pentecost. So the Feast of Pentecost. I wonder if the, the disciples were starting to see the pattern. They celebrated these feasts over and over again. And all of a sudden they're seeing Jesus fulfill the feast on the feast. I wonder if they were talking. They said, wait a second. Jesus died as the Passover lamb on Passover. Then he was buried like the unleavened bread. He was striped and wounded and buried. And then he was raised on first fruits. I wonder what's going to happen on Pentecost. I'm seeing a pattern here. I wonder if they, they, you'd think they'd obviously see it. And Jesus said, you know, tarry in Jerusalem until I send the promise of the Father. So we have to, to, to study um, the pattern what was the first Pentecost? The first Pentecost was when, uh, after God delivered them out of Egypt, 
He took them. They, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, they escaped in the middle of the night in a hurry. They ended up a few days later getting stuck at the Red Sea. Paul says he described it as they were baptized unto Moses in the Red Sea, right? What is baptism? Buried with Christ, raised to walk in the end of the life. Guess what day that was? First fruits, the day Jesus was raised from the dead. And the Bible says count 50 days from there. 50 days in their journey they came to Mount Sinai. Remember the story? They were scared witless. The smoke and fire and the trumpet going off. And can you imagine the mountain trembling and God himself gives ten commandments and they heard them with their ears. Now, they may not have known what they were going through at the time, but the, the Bible says clearly that was the first covenant. And, and I'm going to read Jeremiah. To, it'll illustrate that clearly. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband unto them, says the Lord. So what was this Pentecost thing going on? It was the first covenant that God... You know, it was, it, and he says, though I was a husband, it, it paralleled the Jewish wedding where a man would make a proposition, will you marry me? And the woman had the option to say yes or no. And in this, there was called the ketuva, which was a written document of the responsibilities of the man and the woman. And so everybody knew they were, that what they were getting into. And so here you have God giving his requirements, the Ten Commandments. And the people are so afraid, they're going... Moses, you go near and hear what he says. We'll do whatever he says. Right? They were just petrified. So what were they doing? They were agreeing to this marriage. A man picks one woman. God picked one nation to be his nation. And so he said, the, the first covenant is not going to be like the new one. He's foreshadowing here. And to, to, to look ahead a bit, uh, Ezekiel talks about what this new covenant will be like. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 25, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a, a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and keep my judgments and do them. So that's the new covenant. What's the old covenant? So I... I want to illustrate two attributes of God. On one hand, he's the only being in the universe that has the perfect understanding of right and wrong, good and evil, uh, what's truth, what's right, right? But then he has a second attribute. He's the only being in the universe that has the character and the consistency to always do the right thing with what he knows. He's not like us that know what to do, and don't do it, right? So, predict with me, what's going to happen when this holy God gives Israel perfect commandments, but not like the new covenant that's going to come. He doesn't give them his spirit. He just gives them the rules to follow. What's going to be the outcome? I predict they're not going to keep it. 
And I would have been right, but I, I was shocked. You can imagine, now you think, they were petrified full of fear. I think for five, six years, they are going to be so afraid to do anything wrong, they're going to walk on eggshells, right? Well, what happened? Before Moses came down the mountain with the, the codified words on a tablet, they had already broken the first two commandments. They built a golden calf and worshipped another god. And then Moses tells Aaron, what in the world is going on? And Aaron lies to him. Another commandment. You know what Aaron said? He said, well, we built this fire and we threw in the gold and out came the calf. I always tease about, you think Burger King had the first Whopper. No, <laughs> Aaron had the first Whopper. So he broke it. So what's the tendency of human beings? We're more likely to know right and wrong, but less likely to do it, right? So being the year of COVID, how many illustrations could I give you today of a governor that said, no eating in restaurants, no hanging out with anybody that's not in your family, and you have to wear a mask all the time. Well, the governor of California, shortly after there, was caught in a famous restaurant called the French Laundry. Um, I only know one person in this room that's ever been there, so I can't tell you what it's like, but I heard it's like, in, nowadays anyway, incredibly expensive. One guy put it this way. He said, the French Laundry is not where you go get, get your clothes cleaned. It's where you go to get your wallet cleaned. <laughs> so here he's caught red-handed. How do you explain that to your people? There, there's really no way you can except I was wrong, right? But this is the typical behavior of, of the human being. We're inconsistent. We know the, the good rules, but we don't have the ability to do it. So why did God give us the law? If he knew we couldn't keep it, why did he give it to us? Well, I think the purpose of giving the law is two, at least twofold. One, the Bible says it was a tutor to lead us to Christ, to convince us that we can't live a perfect life. I go, option one, be perfect. Humble, humility would say, Lord, you got option two because I can't do it. That's humility. And God had option two, was his son. The other good thing about the law, it keeps society under restraint, Right? The law, when enforced anyway, keeps people under restraint so that until they come to know Christ and they can be led by the Spirit, that they have, uh, the society can, can be controlled. We've noticed also in COVID what's happened where people have withdrawn, uh, police has been withdrawn from areas. What happens? Crime goes through the ceiling. Murder rate, 250% higher. You know, and the crazy things that happen in California... Um, San Francisco passed a law that if you shoplift stuff less than a certain amount, we aren't going to prosecute you. Walgreens, I think it was, had to close four or five stores in San Francisco because they can't make a profit. Why? Because people are in there stealing stuff. And it's like, are people crazy? You know, until Christ comes and until everybody has the spirit, there's no possibility that people are going to behave. And people that you'd think normally behave, what happened? Katrina, during the hurricane. Certain parts of the town, all the police and all the, the fire department was helping people save their life. 
Other parts of the town where the police couldn't go, the people would say, well, let's break into the store and loot. Why? No law enforcement. So law has its purpose, but it's supposed to lead us to the point where we humble ourselves and come to Christ until we can get filled with the Spirit. I want to read one verse. It is like the key verse I want to um, get in your heads today. Listen to this. Remember, I just told you, you can't keep the law, right? That you're not capable. And the law says you violate the law one time, you're guilty. You know, the, the bank robber can't go to court and say, here's a list of 200 banks I haven't robbed in this county. I'm mostly not a bank robber. <laughs> right? You rob one bank, you're guilty. Right? Ladies, if your husband committed adultery, and he says, well, I only did it once, I'm mostly not an adulterer. You would probably say, and you mostly don't have a home to live in except your car. <laughs> so one break, you're guilty, right? So it's impossible to do. So what's the solution? Listen to this, Romans 8. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Us? I thought it was impossible. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Oh. Remember First Pentecost? Here's the rules. Did he give the Spirit? No. What happened? They broke him. Second Pentecost, New Covenant. What does God do? He writes the rules in our heart. Then he gives us the grace by the Spirit to live it. The possibilities are endless. But there's also a downside. We have a tendency to move in and out of the Spirit so seamlessly we don't even know what's going on. Illustration, remember Peter? Jesus says, who do men say that I am? They give him a couple answers. Then he turns to them and says, who do you say I am? Who answers first? Pistol Pete, I call him Pistol Pete. He's always first. He answers, you're the son of God. Jesus, who has perfect revelation, says, blessed are you, Simon Barjama. You heard from heaven. Whoa, I wonder if Peter walked around like, whoa. I got the main light. You guys want to know about God? I'll get hold of him, you know. And, and so he's feeling pretty good, right? And then, but two minutes later, what happens? Now that they know he's the Christ, he introduces that he's going to suffer and die. And Peter, the fisherman, of course, he's the theologian, the Bible says, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Never. And Jesus gives the perfect evaluation of that statement. And what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. In two minutes, he went from heaven to hell. And if that doesn't surprise you, here's the surprise. He didn't know which was which. He thought they were both from heaven. In fact, if you look at it, I think he's more emotionally involved with telling Jesus he can't die than he is telling him he's the Messiah. In and out of the Spirit. And he didn't know. So the Spirit gives us endless possibilities, but it also comes with, you know, when God gave us the Spirit, He didn't say negotiate. He says, hey, I'll give you the Holy Spirit if you give me your free will. Or He didn't give us our glorified body when He gave us the Spirit. That would eliminate a lot of problems, right? And He didn't instantly renew our minds. 
So here's this tension. The possibilities of being in the spirit, no limit. The reality, there's a lot of stuff in us that's still messed up. And sometimes it's innocent. There's a story in the Old Testament where David and Nathan are talking. Nathan is David's prophet, but this may be a little trouble. He's also his friend. And so David talking to me one day, and I'll paraphrase it, but the story's... I think I convey the truth here. He says, you know, Nathan, it's not right. I'm the king of Israel. I got a house of cedar. You know? And you know where God is? He's in a tent out back here. And Nathan, the Bible says, and Nathan the prophet defines him as a prophet. He says this to David. Do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. He invokes the name of the Lord. This is from a prophet. It's like a blank check, right? Is this the Lord? You, up front you say, yeah, he's a prophet. And he's invoking God's name on his idea. The Bible says that David, um, Nathan went home that night and the Lord woke him up in the middle of the night. And guess what the Lord said? Go tell David he can't build the house. Oh God, I just told him. <laughs> How many times... Do we think we're giving godly advice? Or you go to a friend, you need, some, you need a confirmation of something you're, you're dealing with, and you present it. How do you know if that person is not doing what Nathan did? I'm your friend, your idea seems good. You can't find any problem with the, the idea David had. I mean, it, it seems right, doesn't it, that God would have a better place to live than the king? It's only appropriate. How embarrassing would it be? A king comes from a far country, says, I've come and I heard about your great God, and he sees David's palace of cedar. Whoa, that's awesome. Where's your God? Oh, in a tent out back. What? So, Peter is in the Spirit. You're the Son of God. Two minutes later, he's out of the Spirit. No cross for you. Nathan is out of the Spirit. Go ahead and do it. Later, he's in the Spirit. No, you can't do it. John the Baptist one of the most anointed men, the only man, I think, in the Bible that says that he was filled with the Spirit from this mother's womb. You know, the experts would tell you, if you want to be successful, it's three things are important. Location, location, location. And in ministry, I would say also a positive message would make you, you know, best-selling books these days are how to have your best life now, not how to take up the cross and follow, right? So John the Baptist picked the most miserable location in the world. He picked it. He was told to do it. When I lived in Israel, uh, it's a 4,000 foot drop from where I was in Jerusalem down to the, the Dead Sea area, Jericho. In Jericho, um, the strawberries come in in January, not June. It's so hot. That's 1,300 feet under sea level. You think Death Valley's, it's like two or 300. 1,300. People get off the bus from Jerusalem where it, it's up at the elevation, the same as about the flats up here, about 2,700 feet. And they, it's like 82 in Jerusalem, nice out, no, low humidity. They get off at the Jer uh, Jericho, down at Jericho, the bus, it's 115, and you see these people just losing their lunch because of the, the different temperature. So this is where John the Baptist, the people have to drop down 4,000 feet, then walk up 4,000 feet. To go down and hear who? 
Is he dressed nice? Kind of got charisma? No, he's camel's hair. And his message? Find me one statement of John the Baptist that was positive. His most common was, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape hell? Right? Everybody came to be, how about me? And he'd rebuke him. said, you need to share your second coat. You need to be content with your wages. I mean, what in the world? How could he be successful? He had to have such a supernatural anointing because everything about it was undesirable. And one day he sees Jesus and he says, you know, I mean, he's full of the spirit, the peak of his ministry, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then he testifies and says, I didn't know him, but the person, the God who sent me says, when you see the Spirit descend on the guy and stay on him, that's the, the Son of God. Man, this is a bold statement. I think it's pretty easy to see he's in the Spirit when he said it. Jump ahead a few, a few weeks, months. He's arrested, thrown in prison. This man who boldly in the Spirit said he's the Son of God, what does he say this time? He sends two of his disciples and says, go ask him, are you the one or do we look for another? A man filled the Holy Spirit from his womb and yet look at the, the possibility. For, and he he's believes both, I'm sure. But we get in times in our life where we're depressed, we're discouraged, things aren't happening, and we start to doubt. We get in and out of the Spirit Peter didn't know if he was in or out. He thought he was in and in. Nathan would have never counseled David wrong, but he just did it out of the Spirit. It wasn't like the most horrible thing ever, but it happens. So we have this tendency to be inconsistent. We have a, a, a special... Uh, there's something about hypocrisy. It's something we all despise, and I would say especially when it's pointed out to be in us. We have this tendency to have a double standard. We talked about how many times in COVID that there was rules about, you know, one, I think one lady said, uh, don't go to your hairdresser, don't get a haircut. Remember that one? And then two days later, she was getting a haircut. Yeah, so we have this tendency to be, uh, have one judgment for you and one judgment for me. You know, the politician goes to the anti-gun rally uh, and is surrounded by people with Glocks, right? So it's like, Guns are evil, except when they protect me. So here we have a story, I think the classic one is in the Old Testament, illustrating this tendency for us to move in and out of the Spirit to be, uh, have double standards. Classic one, I think, Judah. Remember the story? So Judah's passing by this area, and he sees this woman veiled, and assumes she's the harlot, goes up to her and says, hey, what's it going to cost me? And she says, a goat. He says, well, I don't have a goat with me. He says, well, give me your cord, your signet, and your ring. He does. Spends the night with her, apparently. Now, you think, compare Judah to Joseph. Remember Joseph's being pressured by Potiphar's wife? And he goes, no way. That would be sinning against God. So the same family, and here this guy has one moral, and Joseph completely the other. So you think, maybe he was just had a weak moment, and after he did, he felt bad, and he went home and confessed and cried out to God, No. Or at least he was ashamed of it, right? Now, he goes up to his friend Hiram and says, yeah, I slept with this whore down there. Can you go give her the goat and pay her off, get my stuff back? So Hira goes down there. He can't find her. He asks people around, where's the harlot in this place? 
The town people say, there ain't no harlot around here. So how does Judah judge himself for what he did? Does he feel bad? No. Is he ashamed? No, he tells his friend what he did. Three months later, they come to Judah and say, hey, your daughter-in-law is pregnant by whoredom. He didn't know it was him that did it. He actually had incest with his daughter-in-law. He didn't even know it. So consistency would be, oh, she messed up too, just like me. But what does he say? Bring her out, let her be burned. It's a little bit of difference in the evaluation, right? Between give, a, give, a, give yourself a pass or let her be burned. So even though we have the Holy Spirit now under the new covenant, and there's enormous possibilities, we're still human. We still have a tendency to think we're right when we're wrong. And following the examples of these great men of God, they didn't know it. You know, I always say to myself, um, life is tricky. You know, sometimes you hear uh, something, you know, uh, and you wonder, we, we have this assumption, I think, that the majority, get all the majority people and all the smart people together and they'll tell you and that that's what's right. But what does the Bible say? Most of the time, it's the minority that's right. Twelve spies, how many are right? Two. Four hundred prophets of Ahab and Micaiah. Who's right? Micaiah. Seventy in the Sanhedrin. Who's the one Pharisee sticking up for Jesus? Nicodemus. They wanted to condemn Jesus. And Nicodemus, quoting Moses, says, our law says we have to hear the guy before you can condemn him. And the Pharisees wouldn't even pay attention. They would break the law of Moses because that wasn't on the, on, what an option. They just wanted to get rid of him. So the tendency, 850 false prophets, Elijah's the only one defending God at that sacrifice. So life is tricky. If you talk to the politicians in Washington, D.C., having a $30 trillion debt is not a problem. The experts say it's not a problem. No one's trying to stop our spending spree. So who's right? The Bible that says the borrower is servant to the lender or our expert economist that says it's not going to be a problem that we spend the money we don't have. So if people who are saved have a hard time staying in the Spirit, what are the odds the people that don't have the Spirit have anything worthwhile to say at all? Even though they are so-called experts. So we have to be aware and constantly walk in humility because there's going to be times in your life where you swear you're right. You have Scripture to back you. And you're going to be wrong anyway. And there's going to be times when you are in the Spirit. And it's going to be awesome. And you're going to be right. You know, it's like, we, I kind of wish there was a rule, right? That you always do this. Open the Bible and it always says, do this when this happens. You think of Abraham, remember when Sarah came to him and said, I think you should sleep with Hagar and then we can have a child through Hagar. And Abraham said, okay. So he does it. And then what does Sarah say to him next? 
my sin be on you. What? I did what you said. My sin be on you, is what she said. So I wonder if Abraham said, all right, rule number one, don't listen to your wife. But then what happened later? She says, kick out the bondwoman, he'll not be heir with Isaac. And it grieved Abraham. So he probably thought, okay, last time I obeyed you, you said my sin be on me, so I'm not going to do it. What does God tell him? Do what your wife says. There's a famine, God tells one person to stay, the next time he tells them to go. Why can't we look in the book and go, when there's a famine, stay? The Bible, Jesus described the Spirit as the wind, this mysterious, unpredictable, you know, I'm up on the flats, the wind blows like crazy up there. It'll blow one direction, this direction, it's like you can't figure out where it's going. And that's what it's like to be led by the Spirit. A lot of times what we think, I remember one time I was doing missionary work, came home, raised some money, and I prayed, and I went to the mailbox, and there was a check. Oh, man, did I ever figure that one out. When you need money, you pray, and then you go to the mailbox. Sheesh, how easy is that? Well, that never happened again. <laughs> Being led by the Spirit is not following the book, a routine. It, and a lot of times God will tell you things that... Are, are not logical or reasonable. How would you like to be the prophet? God says, tell the people that just been in a three and a half year famine who just paid 80 shekels for a donkey head that tomorrow they're going to get 16 gallons of barley for one shekel. Are you sure? And he says it. And the gatekeeper who is an expert on commodities said that couldn't happen if God opened the windows of heaven. And the prophet said, you got a terminal case of unbelief. And he died. Got stampeded at the gate when people, can you imagine you haven't eaten good for three and a half years and there's food almost free out there? Talk about a stampede. Knocked him out, killed him. So we are living under the new covenant. We are living at a time when we have the possibility to live in the spirit. I want to close with just one, one story here. The story, sometimes God gives us a prototype in the Bible. So before people were living by faith under the new covenant which we're in, they were under the law. But before they were under the law, we have a prototype called Abraham. How did he live? He wasn't under the law. It was before the law. How was he justified? The Bible says he was just by faith. Well, wait a second. That's how we're doing it. That's Paul's gospel. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted for righteousness. So there's a prototype. Before God does it on a grand scale, he gives us a glimpse, a prototype. And I'd like to show you one of those prototypes. It's a story you probably have heard in Luke chapter 2, a guy named Simeon. Remember Simeon? I'll read, read this. Listen to these key points in his life. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And this was before the Holy Spirit was given, before Jesus died. Remember the symbol, the veil of the temple was torn into. Now access to God is available, but before, no, not in an in a open sense. 
And he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, which would mean he's waiting for the Messiah, because that's the only thing that's going to help Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit to the temple when the parents of Jesus brought the child. So the law of Moses said that a firstborn after 30 days had to go to the temple and uh, the firstborn male of every family had to be dedicated to the Lord. And so this is what they're doing. So it'd be a short ceremony, a pigeon and a turtle dove uh, sacrifice, and Jesus would have been dedicated after 30 days. So the Spirit happens to get him there just at the right time. He could have been a day early or even a couple hours early and missed it. But the Bible says that the Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit talked to him about something. The Holy Spirit led him to the fulfillment of that thing. And then, I know you, you see these pictures of Jesus with the halo. So I don't think that's how Simeon knew which child there was Jesus. He doesn't want the halo. No. He knew by the Spirit. And then, the most common, you study the Bible, the most common thing to happen after the Spirit comes on a person is that they have some utterance. The Spirit of the Lord came on a prophet, he spoke. The Spirit even came on King Saul, and he prophesied, and people said, Solomon the prophet? What, what is it? Well, the Spirit comes on you, the most likely thing to happen is you're going to speak something. They have Pentecost, it was tongues that other people recognized. I was in Poland one time, um, and this guy came to us. I was with my friend that we travel with. He came to us, and he only spoke Polish, and we could understand he had a problem, and so we're just going to pray. So we got in a circle and began to pray because we couldn't communicate. What's your problem? How can I give you an answer, right? So we were sitting in there and praying, and the guy that speaks only Polish, as we're praying, he starts speaking in English. And I'm going, what the heck? I thought he said he couldn't speak in English. He was speaking in tongues. And he was describing the problem he had and the answer. And later we had an interpreter, and we came to him and he says, um, you won't believe this, but here's what you were praying in tongues, and here's what your problem is. And he looked up and was like, how'd you know? I said, well, you knew it. The Spirit knew it in you. The day of Pentecost, the Bible says they were shocked because every man understood the language that how do these Galileans learn perfect dialects that speak in our language? So they're amazed. So Simeon is the prototype. The Spirit's on him. The Spirit's talking to him. The Spirit's leading him to the fulfillment. Then he prophesies over the child. I mean, just picking the right child would be an act of the Spirit, right? And so here he is fulfilling. Um, and what does he say? He holds Jesus in his arms. Now, if you had asked Jews at that time, he says, how do you get, what's salvation? They would say, you've got to be circumcised and keep the 613 commandments of Moses. <laughs> you stupid. Don't you read the Bible? That's how, that's salvation. Simeon holds Jesus in his arms and says, what? Lord, I can depart in peace now because I have seen your salvation. What? Salvation's a person? Yeah. Why? Because the law never justifies anybody. The law only condemns. The Bible says if you're trying to be justified before God by keeping the law, you have 
estrange yourself from Christ. Christ will do you no profit if you're trying to justify yourself by the law. So what's the goal here? The goal is who can yield the most to the Holy Spirit? Who can walk the humblest so that before you make, and I've noticed this, I don't know if this is true in your life, when I have an opportunity to really get out of the Spirit, and sometimes, to be honest with you, it feels good. You know, when somebody's done you wrong, doesn't it feel good to just give them both barrels sometime? But I've always noticed, when I'm in that window of time, the Holy Spirit very, very subtly says, it's like he gives me, yield to me, and I'll give you the grace not to blow up. But Lord, it feels so good sometimes. The Holy Spirit is there, but how is he? He's gentle. The Bible says don't grieve him. We need to yield to the Spirit. Back to that key verse. The righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us who walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Are there challenges? Yes. You'll be in and out of the Spirit, and you won't even know it. If you're not walking humbly, you'll jump to conclusions. And they're so logical, you think God himself wouldn't argue against you. But the benefit of the Spirit. Uh, There's a man I traveled with for a short time. He was uh, the leader of the intercessors for Sweden, Shel Sherberg. He described, he was a missionary in... I think at one time India and Pakistan was one country, I'm not sure. But he was in that area. They spoke Urdu, whatever that is. And he says, there's been one time in my life where I've seen the Holy Spirit fall on a, a town, a community. And he said this. He says, not everybody got saved. But he says, everybody was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He says, people were so polite. They had all the fruit of the Spirit. They'd be praying down the street. They'd be preferring each other instead of fighting in line. And in Florida recently, two guys were fighting for Starbucks, and uh, a guy killed the other guy. He shot him for cutting him off at Starbucks. When you have the Spirit, though, what does the Bible says? You can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. I've read testimony of revival in, I think it was over in England and Scotland area, that when the Holy Spirit would descend on a community, the um, crime rate almost disappeared. That the actual story, the police were so unemployed that they became quartets at the revival meetings. They would sing because they had nothing to do. Why? Because the Spirit was so heavy in that area. Everybody was under the influence of the Holy Spirit, whether they were saved or not. In fact, Shell said that in this town where the Holy Spirit fell, get this, the imam, which is the leader of the mosque, Muslim, he got saved and was teaching from the book how to know Jesus in the, in the mosque. The other Muslims around the town found out and drove him out of town. But that's how powerful the influence of the Holy Spirit is when he falls at that level. So you can imagine, what is the millennium going to be like when the devil's locked up? And the Bible says the the, the Spirit will cover the earth, the knowledge of the Lord and the power of the Holy will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. If you've ever had a moment in the, the happiest, most joyful point, of the highest level of the Spirit you've ever experienced, that's nothing compared to what it's going to be like. We have, the Bible says, a down payment of the Spirit. There we have not only our glorified body, which means all the struggles with the flesh are going to be gone, 
but will have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You'll be able to fly. Come on. Who hasn't dreamed of flying? I dream of flying. It's some of my greatest dreams. I'm flying. Well, Jesus can fly. He floated in the air. You won't lock your keys out of your house anymore. Jesus just went through the door or something. I don't know how he do it. You can eat for pleasure and not gain weight. Huh? How about that? Have no more, you know, when I was in my 20s, I didn't think the glorified body was that good. I kind of liked mine. Nowadays, it's like, bring it on. <laughs> Give it to me now, right? So we're looking for a day when we'll have the fullness of the Spirit. Until then, though, we have the potential, high potential, but we have to yield. We have to walk humbly. We have to question ourselves. Am I saying this because I just religiously, you know, I've, there's been times where I, you know, I have more maturity in the Bible, I can just sh- give guys both barrels. And the Holy Spirit says, don't. That person has walked with the Lord for two months. Of course you can blow them up with a shotgun scripture. You weren't that good when you were that age, by the way. Okay. So listen to the Holy Spirit. Yield to the Holy Spirit. The more you yield, the more he manifests. And the more power that we'll see and following the pattern of Simeon, let the Spirit of God be on you. Let the Spirit of God talk to you. Let the Spirit of God lead you. Let the Spirit of God inspire what you say. I don't think we have any idea of what we could experience, and I think we will in the last days. We'll have a measure. When trouble gets so heavy that we'll have nothing, you know, all the stuff that gets us distracted and disobedient, you know, when things get pressured and dangerous, there's a tendency, and you'll see this, where's the spirit moving the most? China, where they have the least freedom. Why? Because there's this pressure where they're kind of like self, they're focused. That same person may come to America and backslide like the devil, you know, because there's no restraint here. You can do what you want. But there, you get narrowed down when you're under pressure, and you tend to respond to the spirit better, which gives you more power. So, Pentecost, we're under the new covenant, not the old. It's a better covenant, better promises. There's no new, new covenant, by the way. There's nothing that's going to top Christ or the blood of Christ. Hebrews says, we're under a better covenant, and it's the final one. And you have the privilege to be a member. Can you imagine? You could have been born 3,000 years ago under the law. You were born in the church age. It's a perfect bookends. First trumpet was Pentecost. Last trumpet is the, the Feast of Trumpets. That's the church age. And we're a lot closer to the end of the church age than the beginning. The next big event on the calendar in the feast is Christ's second coming to take his bride. In John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I do, I'll come back. Well, he's going to come back next big event. So until then, we'll do our best to yield to the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Walk humbly. Test everything the Bible says. Hold on to it if it's good. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible privilege you've given us to live under the new covenant. Lord, when you give us the opportunity, if we yield to the Spirit, we can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law And there's no boast because it's your spirit in us giving us the grace. Help us, Lord, to walk in that humility. 
so that, Lord, we can attract more of the Holy Spirit's power. Lord, not only in each life, but as a church, that your spirit would manifest more significantly, more powerfully. Father, we thank you for the feast, and we thank you for fulfilling the feast by sending the power of your Holy Spirit on this, this age that we're in. Help us to finish strong, to take the gospel to every tribe, nation, and tongue, and then the end shall come. Lord, we look forward to that day when we'll meet you in the air, have our glorified body, have the fullness of the Spirit. Lord, no more pain, suffering, and tears. No more not knowing and not understanding. But Lord, to walk in the fullness as you walked in the fullness. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Help us to respond and yield. At even the slightest move of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. again and turn to page for all of us at some point in our life uh, we shift from faith in Christ to doing good works and we we want to please God what are the you know what does he want me to do and we get our focus off of Christ but that focus always leads us into two ditches so if you're a religious person you try to keep the rules with all your heart like Paul did perhaps it leads you to pride. Are you perfect? No, but you keep the rules better than other people. Remember the Pharisee? Lord, I thank you. I'm not like the publican. I fast twice a week. Or the other is the other ditch is you're condemned. You're, you're honest. and you, I try to keep the rules and I fail. I try to keep the rules and I fail. The law never justifies you. Back to the first verse I emphasized. You're able to keep the righteous requirements of the law by walking in the Spirit. You can't take credit for that. Paul said to the Corinthians, everything you have, you receive from God. Why do you boast like you had it before? It's all a gift of God. So go and yield to the Holy Spirit. Walk humbly. Be careful. Test everything. Act boldly when the Spirit moves you. But also question your heart. Am I acting boldly because of my righteous indignation? Or... Is it the Lord? Sometimes it's hard to tell until after you blow it, right? <laughs> Have a good week.